You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Douglas Wilson. Today I'm with Douglas Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, a farming area of the United States. Fantastic crops, all the things that interest me as a farmer, I've got to say. Uh, but he's pastor at Christ Church in this town. Uh, he's the chairman of the board of New St. Andrews College. Uh, he's involved in Christian uh, media, uh, both old school and alternative media. He served in the submarine service of the US Navy. He earned two Bachelor of Arts degrees, one in philosophy, one in classical studies. He has an MA in philosophy. He's a senior fellow at New St. Andrews College, where he's taught Greek, Latin, theology, rhetoric, and where he currently serves as the director of the Master of Arts program. He's also taught many classes at Logos School, a, a classical Christian school in Idaho, where he helped uh, put the program together. He's authored almost 80 books on a variety of educational and devotional topics. He's also been featured in two documentaries, including one in which he debated, famously, Christopher Hitchens on whether the world would be better off without religion. Douglas is a gifted Christian apologist and culture critic. He's active on YouTube. He writes prolifically online. He's been published at the Gospel Coalition and the Huffington Post. Well, Doug, thank you very much for giving us your time. Great to be able to talk to you. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Now, as an American just put it to me, America, when I made the comment that it looks distressingly divided, he said, it's divided all right, all the way to the bottom. Right. Now, this is a concern for me as an Australian, not only because I admire your country, but because you are actually still the leaders of the free world. If America is not able to run a coherent policy because it doesn't know what it is internally, that's really challenging. Right. It seems to me at the bottom, what you've got here is completely opposing worldviews now clashing for dominance in the marketplace, completely, almost irreconcilable. Right. So now I see you as an exemplar of what I would have seen of that sort of old style, quite straightforward, very strong commitment to Christianity. Right. So I'm going to start by asking you why you're a Christian. Okay. What does it mean? Why is it important? I, I would answer that question on two levels. So on one level, I'm a Christian because I had godly Christian parents who brought me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord the way the Bible requires. And I'm a Christian because my mother spanked me diligently <laughs> and I needed it because I'm a, I'm a sinner. Uh, so that's, that's one reason I'm a Christian is I was privileged to grow up in a home where my parents really loved God and they really acted like it. Um, so that's sort of an autobiographical reason, but it's uh, and it's a good start. It's a head start. But then when you grow up and you start encountering other worldviews and beliefs, you can't just say, well, I like I'm a Christian because I like it or I'm used to it. Uh, so I um, when I joined the Navy, uh, which is the U.S. Navy, which is not exactly a bastion of righteousness. <laughs> uh, so I. I began to encounter other w ways of navigating the world, which were antithetical to what I believed. And I knew that I had to stand on my own feet as a Christian. I, I couldn't just uh, 
take my parents' Christianity all the way to the grave. I had to figure it out for myself and, and read through and think through the issues for myself. So when I was a young man, I, uh, I began reading diligently and thinking diligently about the, the big issues. And then when I got out of the Navy, I majored in philosophy because I wanted to be a Christian apologist. I wanted to defend the faith uh, to unbelievers. And that meant I had to understand the other worldviews that were out there. And um, so I'm a, I'm a Christian because, and this is the buildup, I'm a Christian because I'm, I am um, fully convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And if a, if a person in this world is crucified by the authorities and comes back from the dead three days later, then whatever else we say about that person, I would want to say that he is the king. He is Lord. And that's the fundamental Christian confession, that Jesus is Lord. So he, he died on the cross, he was buried for three days and came back from the dead, and he was born to die. Um, so that's, that's the message that we see at the very beginning of Jesus' life. Um, uh, his mother is told that a sword will pierce her heart also. He was given a human body because he needed something to sacrifice on our behalf. So I'm, I'm a Christian because I have come to the conviction that the central claims of Christianity are true. Um, and true is uh, an objective reality that would have been true had I never been born, would have been true whether I like it or not, would have been true had I not been brought up in a Christian home. So I believe in the objective, absolute, rock-bottom truth of the central Christian claims. Jesus is Lord. He's the sacrifice for our sins. He was born at Bethlehem in order to die for the sins of the world, which are many. Now, this is really interesting because let's go back to a divided America, divided to the very core, unable to find a way, like so many Western countries, it seems, to resolve your differences. But one of the things I admire about uh, the way you go about things is that you have managed your differences with somebody who's at the opposite end of the spectrum. We first heard about you in Australia, or I first heard about you, collision, right. uh, you know, about you and, and Christopher Hitchens interacting. So you represent one end of that worldview spectrum. He represented the other, and of course, was a great hero. Uh, we all regret his death to, uh, to um, cancer of the throat. Uh, but you managed to build a relationship and to debate right. one another respectfully, pretty spirited at times, pretty willing, right. but that's pretty interesting. You actually modelled how you could get on and have a conversation and respect one another as human beings. Right. Christopher it Hitchens. seems to me. Can I yes. test you on that? Uh, Christopher Hitchens and I got along famously. We got along really, really well. You wrote a book together. Uh, yes, uh, a debate uh, together. That's what began our journey together. Then we made a movie, um, the documentary Collision, which was recorded during our book release tour. And we spent uh, a good bit of time together. And we, he was a gentleman to me. I've mentioned to you before, the only time he was ever rude to me was on stage as part of his debating uh, style. But in person, he was affable and we got, we got along very, very well. 
and from and his worldview was antithetical to mine. He's, he was an atheist materialist, and I'm a uh, traditional Christian. Uh, but one of the tenets, one of the ethical tenets of the Christian faith is Jesus says that we're to love our enemies. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was a personal friend, but a worldview enemy. And I need to be willing to sit down with anybody and talk about anything. And in the current divide um, uh, in America, the unwillingness to talk is largely coming from the cancel culture side. Uh, the people who who would who have tried to shut me down or shout me down or cancel me or to censor me uh, are all people that I would be happy to have a beer with. I'd be happy to go go to lunch with um, and talk about these things. They're unwilling to reciprocate. Uh, and that's the nature of the divide. It used to be that you could have two different worldviews in principle, but we you still had enough civility to to communicate. This is what I'm driving at. Right. Um, but that civility has now gone. And and I think it's largely unilateral, largely aimed at traditional Christians, because it's traditional Christianity that that creates the bedrock for that civility. Right? If, uh, if there is no God and we're just a concourse of atoms banging down through history, there's no reason. There's, all there is is power. Yeah, I'm, that's that's one of the things that's very notable now about the people who reject Christianity in our culture is that everything's about the pursuit of power. So as I see it, what you model, the ability to get on personally at the same time as you vehemently disagreed in terms of your intellectual approach to life is needed more than ever because the things that divide us are greater than ever. But we've got less confidence in democracy than we've ever had as a means of clearing those differences. And at the same time, there's this level of of judgmentalism and of hatred and of rejection of anybody who dares to disagree. I would have thought Christopher Hitchens would have despaired at where we've got to. Would that be fair? I think that would be fair because he was an atheist of the old school, yeah. right? Um, and some of the newer breed are are atheists that um, that I think are just going with the current zeitgeist of a power play. All right, we're going to shut down everybody. Who it's about power. D- it's about power. With th- the thing that people don't realize is that things like things that we traditionally value an open society, a free exchange of ideas, an absence of ideological censorship, religious liberty, things like that. All of these are, there's no neutrality anywhere. All of these things are fundamentally religious values. So if you look at the different religions that exist in the world, certain values arise out of these um, different religious systems whether it's Islam or Christianity or Hinduism or secular materialism, these worldviews produce certain sets of values. And the thing that's very clear now is that secular materialism does not generate the value of the free exchange of ideas. Um, the, had America been founded by secular materialist atheists, we wouldn't have had a First Amendment. We wouldn't have had uh, the, the 
the uh, welcoming attitude toward religious liberty of different denominations and worldviews being uh, welcome. That that would not have been generated by the the worldview that we're after. So uh, the reason I want Christian values to be the bedrock of our social order is I want I want religious liberty for atheists. And I, I trust the Christian system with their liberty more than I trust their system with my liberty. Right. So, Interesting perspective. I should say there'll be, I know, there'll be people who are thinking these issues through. There are many atheists who I think would belong squarely in the Hitchens camp where sensible debate and interaction matters and you don't just blithely walk away from it and shut it down and you don't resort to nastiness. Right. But, I mean, I found his book more, much more challenging than some of the other atheists. Right. I've got to say that. The God, arguments, is not, God is not great? Yeah. 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 I thought, here is a man grappling with the great issues. He's not being trite. He's, argue, he's, you know, he's mounting some arguments that were really very challenging. What, do you, what lay at the heart of his atheism that you found hardest to tackle, if I can put it that way? Yeah. Where was he at most convincing? Because I understand he would say to you, and, and you know, I've seen him, do, I saw him, I've seen him do this on, he's gone now, of course, but he would say, that's a tough one. You know, yeah. you know I don't deny that, that one's I've got to grapple with. What, what was it that, that in his saying, his, his attitude that made you grapple and think again? I would say that his toughest argument, and I have to be honest, that he didn't get to me on a personal level where I, I went home and thought, oh my gosh, I, I, he's rocked my world. But there, there were things that he would say and do on stage where I had to think, think fast. <laughs> All right, so he was, uh, he was very quick on his, very quick on his feet, very um, pointed and very witty. So he could, he could get a laugh from the, all right, uh, from the the audience. He could get a laugh from a Christian audience, from a Christian audience. And you, you say, okay, that's a, all right. I've got to deal with him. I've got to deal with the argument, and I've got to deal with his rhetorical genius. So he was a rhetorical genius, and he was quick. He was very quick. Uh, as far as the substance of his arguments. Probably the um, the things that that he cared the most about um, were, and I noticed if I said something, the things, the two things that would get him going more than anything else would be if I referred to the fatherhood of God, um, because I think Christopher was driven by fatherlessness, right? The, so if I mentioned the fatherhood of God, or if I mentioned the vicarious death of Christ on the cross. And th those, would, those topics would get him going. And I would say that his representation, I'm a, I'm a Calvinist, uh, which means I believe in the exhaustive sovereignty of God. I believe that God is sovereign over all things. And the toughest challenge that he could mount to me would be, he would represent the fatherhood of God as sort of a religiously based North Korean totalitarian system. Right, where God's in everything, and the surveillance cameras are everywhere, and you you can't make a move. The hairs of your head are all numbered. It's it's the totalitarian state that's swollen beyond all recognition, and that's what he would attack as the fatherhood of God, right? The dear leader, and that's a 
tough one to answer. It's a complicated theological subject. How do you have an exhaustively sovereign God and free agency and responsibility on the part of creatures? That's a, that's a challenging subject to begin with. And then when you're being questioned by a hostile atheist who understands how challenging it is and is going after you on that point, it's, that's a steep climb. The rest of the world would see America as a particularly religious country. Uh, it remained deeply Christian. Uh, research shows that uh, you know, many more people in America still call themselves Christians after Europe had pretty much given up on real faith. Great Britain, my own country now, where in the last census less than half identified as Christian. Um, not so in America, you know, you've still got a very vibrant Christian, um, you know, uh, slab to the community, very, you know, I've seen some very full churches in this place. Um, but the divisions here seem deeper still than any other. How has this happened, given the emphasis in Christianity uh, on modelling the very thing you've been talking about, respectful disagreement and ongoing debate, rather than cancelling one another? Let's try and unpack what on earth has happened in this country. Um, there are numerous culprits, but one of the, I would say one of the central culprits for us would be the conviction that many Christians had that the public schools or the government schools for our kids were somehow on our side. And at the beginning, they were. So in the early 19th century when the common schools or the public schools were first getting established, um, it's quite striking that when the, the great Roman Catholic immigration flood in the mid 19th century happened. From Irish, fleeing Irish poverty. Or right, whatever, Ira, uh, Irish immigration, famines. that sort of. Yeah. Um, the Catholic Church in, um, in America formed their own parochial school system in the mid 19th century. As and, they did in Australia. All right, well they did that because here, the public schools were so Protestant and evangelical. <laughs> so uh, public schools, when they started, the, the leadership of them was Unitarian and progressive, but the schools were controlled by local school boards and the populations in the heartland were evangelical and Protestant. And so the public schools had catechisms in them they had the King James Bible, they had Protestant prayers, and the Roman Catholics who arrived started the parochial school system, not because of secularism in the schools, but because of evangelical Protestantism in the schools. They were tax-supported schools, but they were decidedly Christian. And I, I remember as a schoolboy, when I was a young boy, uh, praying, being led in prayer at the beginning of the school day by a government school teacher, um, and that was the last thing to go. So R.L. Dabney and then in the 19th century said, predicting this, he said, Christians then must prepare themselves for the following results. All Bibles, prayers, and catechisms will ultimately be driven out of the schools. And I remember the last of them being driven out of the school, the prayer. The prayer. But the, the allegiance that many Christians had to the school that their grandfather went to now, these are our schools. And the takeover of the state boards of education and the teachers' colleges and the training of the teachers 
has been gradual and slow until suddenly a lot of parents woke up and they said, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Like in the, in the recent round of um, agitated parents at school board meetings illustrates this principle. Some Christians, the, the movement to private education has been really significant starting in the eight, 1980s. Uh, but in the last two years, it's accelerated to a major wave. So it went from something like 2 million uh, students being homeschooled in America a couple of years ago to about 6 million now. Really? Yeah. So That's a lot of kids. They're, they're, the public schools are hemorrhaging now. And then a lot of the parents who are staying behind in the public schools are in revolt against the critical theory and the, uh, all the stuff that's being taught in the schools. Uh, but the reason we are in this position, I think, is because the, the, the college students who are Bernie supporters, the college students who want socialism or who want uh, to adopt all this critical theory, this neo-fascism, represented by Biden's recent speech, um, th those, who, those, who, those people who want those things were educated somewhere. <laughs> they were taught or not educated somewhere. Right? They were- <laughs> They can't have been taught the history. Right. And because you all those young people thinking the answer is socialism. Yeah. They can't have- They can't have been taught history. It has not worked anywhere. Right. And you can't counter uh, the thousands of hours in a secular school system where every class presupposes that God, if he exists, is irrelevant to what we're doing here. We, we just ignore him. Um, you can't have uh, that many thousands of hours of inculcation and uh, catechetical instruction in the tenets of this secular faith and have it countered effectively by a 20 minute sermon once a week. Yeah, because I suppose the average kid I read somewhere in America, you know, your state education system, still, what, 80, 90% of your kids go through it. So it's much lower in Australia, funnily enough. Uh, over a third of Australian kids are educated outside the public system. Okay. It's quite yeah. different. But it's an enormous monolith, isn't it? A state-owned sector. Uh, you, yeah. I think it's the largest bus fleet in the world. Yeah. And those it, yellow buses. And... Uh, you know, the average kid's spending 16,000 hours of their lives before they leave school in the classroom. Right. That's a lot of indoctrination. And, and the parents who were blithely assuming that the kids were being taught reading, writing, and arithmetic the way their grandfather was in that same building um, have had their illusions um, recently destroyed. And I think, uh, so I think that that's where a big part of this division has come from. And the, the, uh, I've recently read, uh, I really liked Oz Guinness's framing device of the, the antithesis lies between the revolution of 1776 and the revolution of 1789, uh, the American revolution and the French and the French revolution. He says that they represent two different worldviews entirely. And I think that that is very true. And one produced the American model of freedom, the other 10 years of chaos before Napoleon ended it. But a lot of damage was already done because Marx particularly picked up. He liked the French Revolution. That was a good thing. Yeah. So you had the Maoist revolutions right. in Russia 
and in China, which have visited untold misery and death and pain around the world. So if you the look contrast at- contrast is very stark. Yeah. And if you look at the 19th century as the century of revolution, uh, kicking off in the late 1700s with the French Revolution and just bookended on the other end by the Russian Revolution and all the foment in between and 100 million dead. You mentioned they can't have been taught history. This collectivism um, has resulted in an enormous pile of bodies. Uh, so that's one way. And I would call it the way of death. It's, it's the way of death and the way of death and slavery. Uh, they either kill you or they enslave you, and there's no, um, there's no real option for you. And the only alternative is the structure of form and freedom together, because anarchy is no answer to collectivism, um, because anarchy is, uh, doesn't have the ability to muster any kind of resistance at all, because if you have an anarchistic society, each individual is a singular atom, and they, they cannot stand against the juggernaut of the collective. Um, and so what happens is if you, if you encourage atomistic individualism uh, by encouraging pot smoking, encouraging pornography, encouraging do what you feel, you've got all these people. It's like a big uh, sack full of BBs and all these um, libertine policies are grease, you know, pour oil in there, greasing the BBs. And you can, it's like a beanbag chair. You can, it has no structural rigidity. There's no, it's manipulable, easily manipulable. But a Christian society is molecular and it's complex molecules form. Uh, churches, denominations, families, regions, towns. It's, these are complex molecules that have the capacity to stand up to, to the collective. And, and there's form and there's free, but there's, in this system, in the, in the way of 1776, there's a balance between structure and liberty that's a delicate balance. And you maximize freedom, but you realize you have to have a certain structure for the, for the freedom to operate. And in. to ensure that the tyranny of the mob Correct. Is, is not let free. Right. Because the mob can behave with unbelievable tyranny. Right. And nobody knows, you know, uh, lynch mobs are, or Twitter mobs, right? I, or French revolutionaries or, in 1789. Right. The, the, the one, when they get the wind in their sails, uh, individual rights go out the window. And, and so I'm, I'm concerned for liberty, uh, not libertinism, not license, but liberty and the the thing that is interesting to me is the both the left and the right at least in our political debates are saying that they want freedom right uh, abortion advocates say they want reproductive freedom well uh, but we have different definitions of freedom operating the freedoms that they want us to have are freedoms that could be exercised in a six by eight prison cell, yeah, I could have, I could have pot smug, smuggled into me in a prison cell. I could have porn in a prison cell. I could, I can be immoral in a prison cell. Um, but the freedom that I want people to have is the freedom to start a business, employ people, move around the country, uh, uh, earn your living, 
spend what you've earned on what you want. <laughs> you know, freedom, the freedom of a free man to, uh, to not answer to the state. Conscience versus constable. <laughs> Very good, yes. It's not mine. Yeah. It was one of your fellow Americans. Yeah. You know, you exercise your conscience as good citizens. You don't need as many constables. If you don't, you'll need more constables. Yeah, so it, this, this ties in with something that our second president, John Adams, once said. Uh, and it was just on the nose. He said, our constitution presupposes a moral and a religious people. It is wholly unfit for any other. So our, the, our constitution, which I think is a glorious document, um, if you give it to a nation of uh, people who are s slaves of sin, who, you know, who are slaves to their vices and, and they can't govern themselves according to that document. That document won't help them. And which we have found out in our vain attempts at nation building around the world, you can't go into a, to a nation where they have no history of Christian personal responsibility, give them a document like the Constitution yeah. and say, here, do this. I think we're all a bit naive uh, about Iraq in that regard. Yeah, it's a good example here. Why don't you all become Jeffersonian Democrats? Because well, the preconditions weren't right. They, the they people hadn't there. reached the point right. where they understood that model of democracy versus, if you like, theocracy. Right. There's another part of my takeout from what Os Guinness has been writing that strikes me as really relevant. I know it's true in my country, which is that since the end of the Second World War, you know, the overcoming of tyranny and so on and so forth, the rules-based system in our part of the world overstated by the Americans, the Western Pacific is prosperous because the Americans have kept the peace since then. But then the falling of the Berlin Wall, democracies won out, very comfortable. It seems like it's an endless summer or has until we all started to hate each other. And that's perhaps created an environment where the march through the left, an actual term used by people who dislike their institutions and so forth, has allowed to, you know, as you've alluded to, push its way through the education system, undermine, and I think this is important to the point where we lack confidence in our leaders, we lack confidence worse in the institutions of our freedom that they serve in, and now we no longer understand or believe in, or we're actually hostile to the underlying concepts of freedom that gave rise to those institutions. So we've been satiated, it's gonna go on forever, nothing's gonna threaten us, particularly in America, you're so big, you're so powerful. Um, has created an environment where we've been satiated, not alert, not switched onto the dangers. Yes. Do you think that's fair? I think it's um, ex entirely fair. So in the Second World War, we were fighting the Nazis and, and the Japan, we were fighting the, uh, the Axis powers. And after the war, we, we shifted to the Soviet threat. The Soviets were fighting Germany at the same time we were, we were co-belligerents, not allies. So we shifted to a policy of containment, the Cold War. So I'm a Cold War kid. I grew up in the Cold War. Um, this, I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and the school I was in used to have nuclear war drills. <laughs> so, you know, we'd go down to the basement and sit along the wall. And so it was a, um, it was a thing, right? So we had that lasted. We had an identifiable adversary and a reason for doing what we're doing until the 
Berlin Wall went down and the Soviet Union disintegrated. And then the danger is, is this, um, when there are no more dragons to fight and, and you succeeded, you run a great risk of becoming the dragon. So uh, we successfully fought the Nazis and we successfully fought the communists. But the, in, the, in World War II, in the time of World War II, there were certain um, leftist thinkers, the Frankfurt School, yep. who fled the Nazis yep. and they came to the United States and um, set up shop in California, New York. With the deliberate intent of undermining confidence in the institutions of freedom. Correct. As a precursor to bringing down Western democratic capitalism and supplanting it with a new form of Marxism. So Len Lenin was a violent revolutionary. He wanted, there was a doctrinaire Marxist view of the, the dialectic would result in the revolt of the proletariat and then, you know, then the, it would be violently accomplished. And there was an Italian, I think he was Italian, uh, Gramsci was a communist, a leftist who uh, spent some time in prison and his followers uh, wanted to argue for what they called the long march through the institutions. And that strategy, the Frankfurt School of Thought, leftist thought, came here to America and they employed that um, strategy and have very successfully conducted their long, long march, their leftist critical theory march through the institutions. They've captured the universities, seminaries, publishing houses, media, K through 12 education. And not only that, they've captured all of these institutions and they still think of themselves as the resistance. <laughs> it's just mind, mind boggling. The real resistance is out in Heartland America where people still go to the state fair and the rodeo and, and have small businesses and are, and are trying to live an ordinary um, blue collar civilized life. And yet everything, uh, the, the establishment is now hostile to them because this long march through the institutions was enormously successful. And it finally got to the point where the people in those institutions decided to make their move. And, you know, it began with the Roe v. Wade decision in 73. Um, uh, then the Obergefell decision was another, the legalizing same-sex marriages, what they call marriages. I call it same-sex mirage. It's not, it's not a uh, marriage, but that is being crammed down our throats. And belatedly, a lot of people woke up and said, we have to start do, doing something. And I regard the traditionalist Americans as numerous, really uh, upset and angry, and are like sheep without a shepherd. There, there's no clear identifiable leadership um, from the churches, from political leaders. Um, it's basically a lot of people are, are bothered and this, how can they be doing this? This is America, but they're doing no it. No Lincoln, no Churchill, no there, Thatcher, no. There's, there's nobody uh, yet. I pray that God will raise someone up who can articulate the vision clearly and winsomely. Uh, now we have, we have, spokesmen we have people um who who can yell and yell effectively and uh this is this um, discontent 
is the only possible thing that could explain the election of someone like Donald Trump. Um, and we, we look, we need someone to throw in the breach. We need, we need, we need to do something. And yeah. uh, we've got cancer, so we'll try this radical new drug. We don't know whether it'll work, but we're on so much in so much trouble. We might as well give it a go. Yeah, yeah I, that's that's the best illustration I think I've heard of of um, Trump's success or his election in 2016 was Trump is toxic. He, he really is toxic, but it's sort of like a chemotherapy. This cancer is killing us and chemotherapy poisons the body in the hope of poisoning the cancer more than it poisons the healthy part, right? So uh, Trump is toxic and he's got all kinds of problems, um, but the thing that's killing us is not him. And, he, and so there, I see it as, as at best a stopgap measure of traditionalist Americans who are caught flat-footed at the, at the development of these two Americas. They've been very comfortable for a long time. Right, and all Seems of a sudden- Seems like it'd go on forever. Seems like we thought it was just going to just go on forever, but it doesn't. Um, and if the only thing I need to do to have a garden full of weeds is nothing. If I just, <laughs> I just have to sit there. And what happened is we were so cozy and so comfortable that we just did nothing. And this goes back to Edmund Burke's great observation. The only thing that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And that's what's happened over the last uh, half century is a lot of good men thought that we could just put this thing on cruise control and just go down the road merrily and everything would take care of itself. But it turns out this is a fallen world and nothing takes care of itself. One of the things that people uh, who know America will tell you, including our former High Commissioner, Kim Beasley, uh, in Australia, who's a man I've got an enormous respect for. And in a conversation with him, he made this point. He said, in the rest of the world, on our televisions, we see what's happening in the big cities, mainly on the coast. It misses middle America geographically as much as socially, that the heartland of America yeah. is still different. And, and that's what strikes me in this, as an outsider, it looks surprisingly balanced. I mean, uh, you've had the, uh, as we speak, not long ago, this extraordinary speech by your president, if I may say so, attacking people uh, who were Trump supporters, but it's half the country almost, whichever way you slice it. It's an unbelievable number of Americans yeah. who, as you say, were not necessarily supporting an individual as reacting to what they saw as the killing off of their country. One of our names for it is, it, people call it heart, the heartland or red state America. Another name for it is flyover country. You fly, yeah. So yeah. if you're gonna fly from New York to California, it's a, you can get on the plane and get off the plane and have lunch, right? But there's a huge quadrant there. If you, if you look at uh, election, electoral maps, they'll, they'll give you red state, blue state. Um, and you, but you can get maps where they break it down by county, red counties, blue counties. And there, the, the red is <laughs> overwhelming and blue, blue hotspots. Uh, here in the cities and the coasts. And it's two different ways of thinking, two different ways of functioning, two different, two different worldviews. And the, the two are not consistent with each other. This, yeah. uh, I'll tell you something that jumps out at me about this. It's incredibly patronizing. It's, it's, it's 
like a, a really ugly class-based system. It's almost Marie Antoinette living the high life, saying, let those peasants eat cake. Yeah, when in fact let them buy start. an electric car. <laughs> uh, but the point I wanted to drill into here is that there's almost a despising now by the elites in particular of those who are in the red states, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And yet they're what Victor Davis Hanson might call the muscles of the country. They're the farmers. They're the people carting the grain around. We're in a rural area of uh, uh, USA as we speak. They're the people processing the food. They're the people delivering it to your doorstep when you're in isolation during mm -hmm. COVID. They're the people that are doing the nursing if you get sick. They're the people doing the policing that are under attack. I mean, what an irony that you defund the police out of your political correctness when the people most likely to call them are vulnerable black women. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what an irony that it then uh, uh, produces a desire for more Americans to go and get guns in case the police can't defend them, right. which is also happening. This attack on the people who actually make the country work without saying, drawing alongside them and saying, you're obviously troubled. Can we sit down? Right. You did it with Christopher Hitchens. Why can't political leaders sit down and say, we need to have a dialogue. I need to walk a mile in your shoes. Mm -hmm. Maybe COVID's made that even worse. It's highlighted oh. the, 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 the scorn for the people who actually keep our society together and do the manual work. Yeah. But what it highlighted, uh, the, the COVID panic really did highlight it because it was amazing to me how um, in the masking orders, it was in the lockdowns and the masking orders where they said, we want to regulate or dictate to you your behavior in every detail of life, right? And when you go outside where everybody else interacts with you, you must have a mask on. Well, in here in our little town, uh, Moscow is a microcosm of what's happening all over the country. You know, it's just a little tiny. Moscow, Idaho. Moscow, not, Idaho. Not a, yeah. Not, not, <laughs> yeah, we're not in the other place. Yeah, no, not at the moment. It wouldn't uh -huh. be very safe. Right. So, uh, but, so what, what this means is it, back at least five years ago, I could go through my day buying things at the store and getting gas for my, my truck. And I could interact with people all day and not have any idea of where they stood on, on the various issues that I would read about in my newsfeed. But what happened with the masking orders is everybody I meet is either made a decision to mask up or not mask up. Everybody is either compliant or not compliant, right? And the people who are wearing a mask encounter me not not wearing a mask or the person not wearing a mask encounters some and we are invited to make a judgment and the judgment might be erroneous but it's amazing to me how fast masking became a political flag all right you've got to wear this lapel pin that says i i support the government and you guys you you guys who are not masked are obviously rebels and uh, and uh uh, libertines. So, and that has helped polarize things. So all of a sudden, uh, we have, uh, i tell a little story here during the masking, um, era, um, some of our, um, our, our private Christian school here stayed open th through the, through the lockdown. Our, our church continued to worship through the, 
through the lockdown and we didn't require masks of the people who came to worship. And so there was that and a lot of tension in the town over that. There was one photograph of our church worshiping on the front page of the newspaper. Okay, look at these reckless people. Look at what these reckless people are doing. Some of my, uh, some of the students at our school, Logos School, uh, one of their teachers had a birthday or, uh, and so they went over to a local grocery store, nearby grocery store to get some small present, some candy or something for them. And they were just there visiting quietly and a lady in a mask came up and just chewed them out. Just how dare you and you're doing this and just let them have it. And they just smiled and didn't answer her and, and then she huffed away. And then another man, an elderly man in a mask came up to the girls and said, way to go patriots. <laughs> <laughs> good job, good job, Patriots. And you see, these were just high school girls going to the grocery store to get a small gift for a beloved teacher. And all of a sudden it turns into a scene. It, it turns into a hostile division. That's one of the things that inflamed everything. Now, people say the comeback will be, well, it wouldn't have been inflamed if you guys had just done what you were told, <laughs> if, if, if you just complied. But freedom doesn't work that way. All right, liberty doesn't work that way. Uh, when I, I do believe that civil authorities do have a responsibility before God for public health. I, I do believe that. And so we gave, when the orders first came down, we said, okay, what, what can we do to cooperate? But after about a few weeks, it became obvious to us that this was a massive power grab. Um, and in a pandemic, a plague, you, you quarantine the infected, you quarantine the people who are symptomatic. You, so if you have a, if, if the bubonic plague broke out in a nearby small town and our sheriff cordoned that town off and said, you can't come out uh, because half the people in that town have died and, and half of the survivors are de deadly sick, it is the responsibility of the civil government to cordon that off. Idaho state uh, law gives the magistrate the authority to quarantine. And I support that authority to quarantine, but it doesn't have the authority to quarantine everybody. <laughs> I, symptom, symptomatic or not, sick or not, you've got to stay in your basement all the time for a year. You're under house arrest for a year. Are you, are you kidding me? Uh, that was just a naked power grab. So my my argument is that COVID was simply the beta test for the climate change emergency. Uh, so if governments can just arrogate to themselves emergency powers because of this health, th this threat to everybody's health, and if anybody dissents on the science, we're going to censor them. We're not going to allow debate. Okay. Um, if I'm a Martian and I just arrived in the middle of this thing and I've said, what's going on, everybody? I don't know who's right about the pandemic. I don't know who's right about COVID, but I know which side is not letting the other side talk. <laughs> right. right. I, I know which side doesn't want dissent. I, I know which side doesn't want scientists to be free to publish a paper without fear of losing their job. I, basically, the naked power grab over with big tech, 
censoring uh, responsible opinions, censoring medical doctors who want to use ivermectin or wanted to use hydroxychloroquine or, you know, uh, you, you can't do that, can't say that, you, you may not. So I'm a Martian, I'm here for 15 minutes. I don't, I've not done the vir viral research, but I know who the tyrants are. I, I know who the, the authoritarians are, the ones who don't want a free exchange of ideas. But science, um, science is based upon the willingness to have your thesis be falsified. And uh, we, it's astonishing to me that, that an orthodoxy on COVID-19 was ossified and hardened within weeks. So, so this thing hits and people were being dogmatic about where this virus didn't originate, you know, didn't originate from a lab and we're going to censor you if you say it did. It can't be treated by uh, these things and we're going to censor you if you say that it can. Uh, this is uh, totalitarianism and it's not 1984 jackbooted totalitarianism. It's more like Brave New World totalitarianism. I call it totalitolerance, where they, they want everyone to be tolerant, but it's a suffocating tolerance where you may only tolerate what we approve. Right. To tease this out a little bit, you're describing there this sort of um, censoriousness. If you dare to disagree, it will silence you. You're no longer virtuous. Mm -hmm. Now, let's be honest extremists of every flavor, left, right, Calathumpian, whatever, can engage in that behavior. Mm -hmm. To go back to you uh, and uh, Christopher Hitchens, what's remarkable uh, is your ability to keep talking, keep communicating, presumably because you respected one another as human right. beings uh, and uh, you probably enjoyed it a bit as well. Oh, I very much. extraordinary thing to enjoy the conversation and company with somebody you disagree with. Yeah. I mean, that's radical, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but. Um, what, I, what I would love before we come to your fight back, what you're doing to try and address all of this, just your comments. I mean, I, it seems to me as an outsider, I, I should be careful here. I'm, I'm not an American, but I admire your country and you're the leader of the free world. So it matters very much to me and my listeners. Um, I think both Trump and Biden have exacerbated this problem in their behavior. By the way, they've gone about demonizing people who disagree with them with their language from time to time. What are your thoughts on what the contribution of each of those presidents to this problem of cancelling one another when we disagree. Yeah, I, I think that Trump's um, language frequently needed to be moderated. He would say outrageous things. And uh, those who voted for him, I didn't the first time in 2016, I didn't, I did not vote for him because I was really just concerned about all the obvious, all, all the obvious things. And I flat didn't believe, he, you know, he promised a number of things. He, I'm pro-life and I'll do this. But my entire adult life, I've been having responsible, well-dressed Republican candidates promise me things that they then don't do. They get elected and they run to the right and govern to the middle. And, and so I've been disappointed time and time and time again. So when Trump, who is this Cosmo I've never heard anybody in Australia say that. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, uh, we're very cynical now about yeah. the legal leadership. Yeah. And that's a problem in itself. And so consequently, after decades of that with, 
well-dressed, well-spoken candidates who constantly let us down. When this renegade from Queens uh, shows up and says, yeah, I'm a conservative, and you've got quotes of him on tape saying he's pro-choice and that sort of thing, and I'm pro-life and I'm going to do this. I just, I just flat didn't believe him. I just thought he's an ungodly man. He's, um, I, I don't know what he's up to, but it's no good. And so I didn't, uh, didn't support him. He said some outrageous things in the primaries against other re Republicans. And um, Ted Cruz's father was involved in JFK's assassination. And, you know, just unhinged kind of things. And then when he got elected and Hillary wasn't, I was astonished at how relieved I felt that, you know, Hillary, whatever else I owe that man, I owe him the fact that Hillary has not been my president. And uh, so I was very relieved and that was kind of surprising. And then to my astonishment, I mean, just, he kept his promises on, on judges. He governed, he governed to the right of where he promised. It, it just, it was like a photo negative thing. Now, I don't know how, um, and then he would tweet things, the mean tweets and those sorts of things. He would tweet things that would get the chimps jumping. And, and, I, and I would think, man, why, what do you do that for? What, what do you do that for? So all the things that people point to, I'm more than happy to acknowledge. Yeah, it would, if you had someone who did what Trump did, but who had the genial personality of a Ronald Reagan, you know, that would have been oh. sunshine in America. Yeah, morning in America. Morning in America. Morning in America. Morning in America. Boy, be boy, nice that, to see a bit that, of that would. I, let me tell you, that would sell. That would sell now. So I'm. I remain concerned about Trump's personal irascibility and thin. How thin-skinned he is. But he he calls his opponents names, but he doesn't shut them down. He doesn't cancel them. He just answers them. He brawls. He brawls with them. What Biden does is shuts you down. All right. He he'll send the Department of Justice after you. Um, I've been visit. I've been visited by the FBI because of things that are something I wrote on my blog. All right. So what? Why? What are you, you know, what are you doing where the the an arm of the state is now monitoring how people debate and discuss and that, that sort of thing? So I would say, yeah, uh, Trump helped set the tone of debate at a lower level than I think it ought to be. Right. But at the same time, I want to say credit where credit's due. He did keep his word, unlike a lot of respectable uh, Republicans. And the, the end result of that is the crown jewel of leftist politics in America, Roe v. Wade, just went down in the Dobbs decision. And now we have the opportunity to fight abortion and we have the opportunity to outlaw abortion in Idaho, uh, which we've already begun to do with the heartbeat bill. And so about half the states are likely to severely restrict abortion or outlaw it, and which is now um, within our constitutional purview, according to the Supreme Court, for which we must thank Donald Trump. The interesting thing about that uh, as an outside observer is that um, 
again, it reflects a lack of understanding of history. And the High Court was not set up to make law, but to interpret it. That's a very important division of powers. Right. But right around the world, the view has been promulgated that this was a decision about abortion, whereas it was actually a decision about who should make the decisions about abortion. Right. And that those people who make those decisions should be accountable to the people, because right. judges aren't. And so that's again a reflection of this lack of understanding of and commitment to foundational principles. You're exactly right. People don't think through these issues carefully, which is what happens when you have two rioting crowds yeah. facing each other across the bar barricades. The time for nuance is past. So, Doug, let's let's change gears. Let's okay. come to you know. It's all very well for us to sit and talk about how things are falling apart and how serious it is. Um, Many of us are trying in our own cabbage patch to do our little bit. I'm trying to make good thinking, varied thinking, available for people to ponder, which is what we're doing here now. Uh, but you are deeply invested in uh, classical education, for want of a better term. Yes. Why? And is there a demand for it? There's, there's a huge demand for it. Um, when we started Logos School, which was the flagship, uh, well, we didn't know at the time it was going to be a flagship anything, but it was the we established in the early 80s Logos School. It's a and private school. It's a private school. Like K not government funded. Not government funded, not one thin dime from the government. And uh, we established it as a classical and Christ-centered education. And we did that because we didn't want, we, we knew what we didn't want when we first started. We didn't want a fundamentalist reactionary academy. So hence the word classical. And we didn't want a Tony prep school where that did everything the government school did with a, a, an anemic chapel service. We wanted it to be robustly Christian. So we, our tagline was a, a classical and Christ-centered education. And so that we planted in the early 80s. I wrote a book about it in um, early 90s, 90 or 91, somewhere around there. I wrote a book about it and that book caught fire and we started getting requests from all over the country. People wanted to start schools like this. And now the Association of Classical Christian Schools has hundreds of schools all over North America. Um, thousands of students are enrolled in these uh, schools. Uh, so the, the rationale for, for this, and we, we were in the early part of this conversation, we were talking about what's called the culture war. But you can't have a naval warfare without ships. And you can't have a tank warfare, tank warfare without tanks. And Christians can't be engaged in culture war without a culture. We, we need culture to be, we can't just be on autopilot for a, a culture that we've inherited, that we've not thought through. So what classical education does is it equips the students to understand the heritage of the West. What is it that we've been, uh, has been bequeathed to us? What are the reasons for it? What is the history of it? How did we get here? So there's a map of the world, a timeline of the world, and we're teaching our kids, there's an X that says you are here. These are your people. This is where you came from. These are the currents and the dynamics that derive, uh, that have resulted in us uh, being where we are. And we didn't the, get here by accident. We, it's it not seems to be uh, almost yeah. an assumption out in the society now that it was always like this. Right. It's changing now, but 
it was always like this, whereas in fact we're the product of great ideas, great struggles over those ideas, in some cases a lot of bloodshed in pursuit of freedom. Yeah. These and things were not lightly arrived at. And modern contemporary Americans tend to think of decades as a series of ponds. All right, there's a pond called the 90s, and another pond called the 80s, and another pond called the 70s. But it's actually a river. And we're living on the banks of a river, and what happened upstream affects us. And, and it goes a long way back. So the reason, the reason we have 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour goes back to the Sumerians. <laughs> it's not like a, uh, where, where we think that, oh, they, they do things differently in the past. Everything that we have and that what we've inherited is inherited for a reason. So we wanted our students who've grappled with the big issues, who've read important books, who know something about the heritage of the West, and who uh, are grateful citizens who've been equipped to give it forward, to push it forward, and to bring up their children in this, the same way. So we've discovered that building, self-consciously building a culture uh, is provides rigidity, um, some of that molecular strength I was talking about earlier. And of course, what we're doing is attacked as being uh, anti-diversity or white supremacy because most of the great books we have them read are, were written by white males and you know that, that kind of charge. But it, it's really... But here's a rub, is it a point made to me by an English educator who was charged with that same thing. Oh, you're just teaching them British history. And she just said, well, actually, they're all going to end up as British citizens. Your students are all going to end up as American citizens. It's their own citizenship that they need to understand surely before they start to consider others. Right. And so that, that's exactly the point. The thing I tell people is that you cannot teach students to respect other cultures by teaching them to despise their own. Right. And what's, what's happening is uh, it's like two, two men who are shopping for a Mother's Day card aren't going to get in a fight in the in the card shop because one of them tried to buy a, a card to the world's greatest mom. Well, <laughs> he's supposed to think his mom is the, is the world's greatest and you're supposed to think your mom is the greatest. If I love my country and my people and my heritage, and I do, I'm very grateful for it. I understand because I honor my mother. I understand why a Korean would honor his mother and love his heritage and love his customs. Uh, a, a, a young person who's taught to honor his father and mother knows why somebody else honors his father and mother. But if you grow up in a society where they teach you nothing but contempt, nothing but disdain for your own father and mother, well, what's gonna happen is you're gonna have disdain and contempt for everybody else's father and mother. And what you get at the end of the day is this alt-right reaction uh, you know, sort of like a, a proud boys recoil against this, but it's that's it, pretty ugly too. It, we it, it's really ugly. Yeah. But what's happened is that it's a it's a reaction to the um, the contempt that they're there that they've been taught, and then they react to it, which without without being taught in in terms of the Christian worldview that gives bounds and and limits on this sort of thing. So I love my father and mother, but they're not absolute. I love my country, but my country's not absolute. 
my allegiance to Christ is absolute, but my uh, gratitude for my heritage and my people and my customs are relative. And I understand that other people are in different positions and they have duties that are different than mine. And that's why affection, uh, bounded patriotism, uh, a cultural uh, establishment that, as you said, is training these students to become the kind of citizens you want in the nation they're going to be living in is what, what we're after. We're not trying to create jingoistic xenophobes. We're, we're trying to create model citizens who understand and respect model citizens in other countries. So if you came over here and expected me to have the same feelings toward Australia that you do, or if it went the other way, it'd be ludicrous, right? Uh, so you love your country and I understand why you do and I understand why you love it more than you love mine. And if I objected to that, I'm the guy in the, in the card aisle getting in a fight with someone about, <laughs> what do you mean your, your mother's? Bounded patriotism? Yes. Um, I'm fond of saying that no human authority, no human relationship is absolute. So I'm grateful for my family, but it's not absolute. I'm grateful for my country and my people, but it's not absolute. I'm grateful for uh, all the relationships I'm in, but only my relationship to my creator is absolute. God alone is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. God alone is the one who cannot be questioned. So I love my country, but I, I question my government. Uh, all right, so yeah. bounded patriotism means that uh, Stephen Decatur was a na early American naval hero who's famously quoted as saying, my country, right or wrong. Um, his toast, it was a toast that he gave, and the full toast was, my country, may she always be right, but my country, right or wrong. And Chesterton once responded to that by saying, that's like saying my mother, drunk or sober. Um, <laughs> the, but if she's drunk, you're gonna have to deal with it. You have to, you have to face facts. So bounded patriotism is, it does not, it is something that refuses to take your nationality or, or your government or your culture as an absolute source of your standards. So, so there are people, um, some people uh, are identify as Christian nationalists where I suspect that they're deriving their ethical standards from their nation instead of applying God's standards to their nation. Now, there are other people, we have to factor in the fact that the left calls anything that they don't like from Christians, Christian nationalism. And I'm, I love my country and I want my country to be Christian. So in that sense, I'm a Christian nationalist, but I'm not a nationalist in the sense that I think my country has the authority to generate an ethical system. We must submit to an ethical system. Uh, there has to be a transcendent moral authority from outside the world, um, because otherwise, uh, this, if, there is no, if there is no God above the state, then the state becomes God. Well, this, this is a really important point, because in the driftage in our understanding, I think, of political systems, you take that, as you say, the idea of uh, responsibility to a higher authority out, you end up with the real dangers 
of an authoritarian regime saying your loyalties are to us and that's communism. This is the fatal flaw that is now at the heart of communism that people have overlooked when they say, oh, the trouble with communism has never been done properly. Well, yes, it has. And we can see it writ large in China today. You must be loyal to the state. That will never work. It will, it can never work. And there are never any absolutes in the state either. There are no, uh, it's all just shifting standards in terms yeah. of the state determines what's right and wrong. Yeah, every, every society reflects the, the, every society has a God of the system, all right? So uh, I want to argue that the God of the system needs to be the true God, the God that parliaments and congresses can't reach and, and uh, transcendent from outside the world. Because otherwise, if your highest moral ethical authority is under the sun, inside the world, then you, the god of the system is Demos, the people, or a few people, the people who got near the levers of power. And, but God, the god of the Bible, is holy. He's immutable, unchanging. That means an ethic based on him, based on his character, is going to be a holy standard and it's going to be an unchanging standard. It's not going to fluctuate with the era. It's, uh, you know, mistreating women is always going to be wrong. Abortion is always going to be wrong. Um, uh, racial antipathy is always going to be wrong uh, because God is outside the world. But if Demos is the God of the system, well, what is man like? Well, man is unholy and he changes all the time. <laughs> he's not immutable and he's corrupted. So that means if you make, if you enshrine Demos as the god, of, the god of the system, then you have to be prepared for an ethical system that changes radically and arbitrarily, which is why we can, the state can say, we've always been at war with East Asia <laughs> in Orwell's uh, portrayal of it. Fascinating that the book you wrote with Christopher Hitchens, going back to that, was actually entitled, Is Christianity Good for the World? So, for example, I would argue, and I think you'd understand this line of argument, that uh, as a Scot, it was really the coming of the Protestant Reformation, John Knox and so forth, that led to one of those moments when the Scots had a parliament as early as 1698, uh, passing a law that said all Scottish children should have an education. And it, I love pointing out to the English that they didn't catch up with levels of Scottish literacy and numeracy for 200 years. That's how important education can be. But it's, it's what you educate, isn't it? What is it about your Christian education of your children here, young people here, that you think is transformative other than them being broadly educated? It's, uh, it's more than just wanting them to be competent and do well on their test scores. It, uh, one of the taglines that we use for our project here is all of Christ for all of life. So we, we believe that... It's the, a comprehensive worldview. It's a comprehensive worldview. We believe that God has authority over geography, mathematics, history, grammar. And if that's true, if adults are to live their lives under the authority of Christ, as though Christ makes a difference in architecture and gardening, and police work and sewage disposal. Christ is Lord of all of it. And if that's the case, as I believe it is, we're to love the Lord our God. The greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, Jesus says, with all your brains and with all your strength. 
if that's the case for adults, then children have to be taught how this works. And that means education. So the great, this, that great command, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, comes in Deuteronomy 6. And it's in the middle of a passage on education. So the, the single great command, love God with everything you've got and apply it to everything. Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Well, in Deuteronomy 6, you're to talk to your children about the authority of God when you rise up, when you walk along the road, when you lie down. Children are to grow up in an environment that's dominated by the Word of God. And so that's, uh, and what happens is we've discovered that when you teach children this way, they're centered, they're oriented, they're uh, integrated, they, they live integrated lives that it's not just, I go to church on Sunday inside a closed box where I talk to God, and then I go out into the world and try to be relatively honest, but I more or less live the way all the non-believers do. That, that's not good enough. There's a song, a kid song I remember from when I was a child, I want to be more than a Sunday go to meeting Christian. I, I want to be a Christian all the time. So you would say, there are many who will say, the founders in America were enlightenment figures, they were deists, they believed in a higher authority and a greater good. Yeah. Uh, but you'd say you need more than that. You actually needed to be grounded yeah. in the core beliefs of Christianity. In other words, you can't leave Christ out of it. Right, you can't leave Christ out of it. And, but I would, I'd go back to the first claim because this, that's one of my favorite topics when the people say the founders were deists. Well, arguably a handful of them were. But at the Constitutional Convention, there were 55 men there. 50 of the 55 were Orthodox Christians. 50 of the 55 were Orthodox Christians. The people who were either deist or I would say the American deists were more like semi-deists, right? Jefferson would qualify. Ben Franklin would qualify. And then Thomas Paine was an infidel, but not really a founder. He was a popular author from, from the time. But the, Hamilton's role and the musicals everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but Hamilton's role is very important. He had a very, yeah, he seemed to have strayed a bit in his personal walk in the middle of his life, came mm -hmm. back to it at the end. But he had, he had a brilliant insight into the tyranny of the mob capability of people. And, and that was profoundly Christian. Yes. And he was one of the authors, one of the main authors of the Federalist Party. Right. Papers. The Federalist. Enormous influence. Yes. So everybody's the, going out there. He learned about Hamilton. He, he's worth closer study. Yeah, I would have and, thought. Uh, Hamilton and uh, Madison, Hamilton, Jay, the Federalist Papers were newspaper articles yeah. that were trying to get uh, uh, ratification of the Constitution through. And uh, I think it's Federalist 53. Um, Madison says basically, uh, you must you must frame a Constitution that restrains the people and simultaneously requires the government to restrain itself. And if men were angels, he said, we wouldn't need a constitution. And the thing that if, again, if I were a Martian arriving here and I said, hey, l let me look at your constitution. What can, I what can I conclude about the founders from the constitution they wrote? My big takeaway is the constitution they wrote uh, has this one central takeaway. Never, ever trust an American. <laughs> they, they didn't trust anybody. They, you know, they, they said, C.S. Lewis has a great, 
line in this. He said, Lewis said that there are two kinds of Democrats. There's a small d Democrat. There's the Democrat who believes that every person's opinion is so valuable that we can't do anything until we've checked with everybody. Um, and he said, that's not the kind of Democrat I am. Uh, I believe that men are so fallen and so corrupt that we have to spread the power as thinly as possible because we can't give too much power to any one person or entity. And that's the genius of the American Absolutely. Uh, of the uh, of the American Constitution. And I have to say of the Australian Constitution. Yeah. Basically yeah, that recognizes that. Break the power up. Don't let anybody get too much of it. Don't let them hold it for too right. long. That what that is built on the bedrock of the Christian doctrine of original sin. Right. Uh, yep. when, when they when they formulated well, the coupled with the dignity, I would have said. Yes, exactly. Yeah, coupled with that the, balance. I, I, somebody I read uh, an American said, uh, 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 "We are so good, we had to give ourselves the vote. We're so bad, we had to give ourselves the vote." <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So when when the Constitution was adopted, they weren't worried about the British coming over again. They, they all these checks and balances, the separation of powers the two-layer federalism, the, the, the central government, and then all the state governments. And then at the national government, you had the legislative and the executive and the judicial. And then the legislative is broken up into two houses. It's a bicameral system. They're spreading the power as thinly as they can. And they're, they're doing it not because the British might come over and become tyrannical again. They did all this because they knew that the Americans could become tyrannical again. And this is why I, I, this is one of my favorite pet peeve arguments. And some conservatives in recent last decade or so have wanted to emphasize American exceptionalism. And they, then they talk about American exceptionalism. But if you look at the history of empires, there was Babylonian ex exceptionalism, there was Persian exceptionalism, there was British exceptionalism. It's, e it's the easiest thing in the world for a superpower at the top of its game to say we're number one. But when the founders were looking at the prospect of becoming a great and prosperous nation, which they were very aware of was happening, Thomas Jefferson particularly, uh, they were very aware that if we get to the Pacific, this is going to be a juggernaut, this is going to be a thing. Uh, at that moment, they said in the Constitution, we put our pants on one leg at a time like everybody else, we're fallen sinners like everybody else. We can't give anybody in the American government too much power. They recognized, the founders recognized that Americans were not exceptional at all. And that's exceptional. That's a really <laughs> powerful statement, that, what you've just said. Yeah. They were exceptional and they recognized they weren't exceptional. Yeah, it's like Socrates saying, yeah. I'm the, I'm the w wisest man in Greece because I know how ignorant I am. Like just about every human being I've met that's truly admirable, they're exceptional yeah. because they don't think they are exceptional. Because they're humble. Yeah. Interesting point, isn't it? Yeah. We should bring this home. You've been very okay. generous with your time. Can't help asking, uh, you know, you have strong opinions. You're a lightning rod for those oh, who yeah. fairly or unfairly like to have a go at you. Yes, that's happened from time to time. <laughs> yes. How do you respond? Well, um, first, there are people out there, critics, I'm, I'm, there are a number of reasonable critics out there who've just heard about me or they've got their pastor who's they've got a parishioner who says, well, Doug Wilson says, you know, and, and I can I can see and understand why a number of people 
uh, are irritated by what they have heard that I say, you know, they're, so that's, that just comes with the territory. If you're going to be a public figure that you, that just comes with it. But there are people who attack me who know better and who are, you know, slanderous or it's malevolent or it's, it's that sort of thing. And that is probably where the serious um, business is. And Jesus, Jesus says, uh, this, I think these are clear marching orders. Jesus says, when men despitefully use you and say all manner of, heave all manner of dead cat at you and say all kinds of nasty things about you, Jesus says, in that day, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Um, I believe that Christians are, are required by the Lord Jesus to um, thank God for the brickbats that are thrown at you uh, because it's this is part of God's purpose and part of God's plan. And so I'm if people uh, slander me, I'm under orders from the Lord to love them, to pray for them, uh, uh, bless those who persecute you. Uh, this is th th I think this is basic Christianity 101, where we have to love our enemies. I, I quote my dad again. Um, my dad would say, the Bible says that you're supposed to love your wife, love your neighbor, and love your enemy. And he said, everyone you meet all day long is at least one of those. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, well. so you've, um, and, yeah. and some of them are more, a neighbor and an enemy. Well, that's what I was just in, wasn't it? Uh, love your neighbor and love your enemy, and they're often the same people. They're often the same people. <laughs> and so consequently, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy doesn't mean flattering your neighbor or never disagreeing with your neighbor or never disagreeing with your enemy. I, I think that you can get into an honest collision or debate, and but the people who slander me or, or debate with me or, or well-intentioned people, people like Hitchens, Hitchens that I got along with or people who just think that I'm an orc, um, what I'm responsible to do is see the image of God in all of them. So uh, they are made in the image of God. And I'm, I've got to respect that. You bounce back at them pretty hard sometimes. Yeah, sometimes think, language that could be seen as acerbic. Yeah, acerbic. I, I, I have, I've been known to punch hard, um, but not all the time. And I always try to punch uh, above the belt. You know, I, I, I don't believe in um, gouging, biting ears, or I don't, I don't want to fight dirty. I want to fight clean. And I don't want to fight like a thug. I want to fight like a cavalier. And I want to fight in such a way that if the per my adversary had a change of heart and mind and, and repented and became a Christian and came to our church, I'd want to be, I'd want to be in a position to give him a hug and welcome, welcome him and say, yeah, you're most welcome. So I don't want to be in any of these brawls with a personal ego thing or a personal animosity, because as soon as I do that, I'm, I think I'm disqualified from the fight. I, I, I want to fight. I want to um, be an apologist. I want to be an evangelist. I want to be a preacher of the, of the truth, but I don't want to disqualify myself on God's terms from that calling, which means I have to love and respect my enemies. But too many modern Christians think that love your enemies is translated as don't have any enemies. And I think that that's just, uh, just wrong-headed. Well, when the shouting dies down, 
the battle's over. We're left standing there thinking what really matters. What's the key okay. for you? Everybody in the world is going to stand before God. And we're going to stand before God in the judgment as individuals. We go to heaven or hell by ones. Uh, and so every, every person ha has either going to stand before God in Christ or outside of Christ. And so my plea or the thing that I would uh, say to everyone, friends, foe, people on my side, people are not on my side, is say we're all on this conveyor belt called time and we're all headed for the moment where we are going to face our maker and I believe that when we face our maker, because we're all sinners, we need an advocate. We need a mediator. We need someone to speak for us. I, I need a defense attorney. <laughs> and, but we have, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, it says in 1 John. So I would encourage people to remember that they have a relationship with God an individual relationship with God, that they've got to do business with him on his terms, not on theirs. And if God says that we need a mediator, we need an intercessor, we need a priest to intercede for us, and God has provided that priest, that high priest in Christ, I would urge everyone to avail themselves of that. And then all the cultural, political, social things that we've been talking about, which are very important, are sort of the collective corporate aspect of this. But the individual being right with God is um, crucial because you can't make a good omelet with rotten eggs. It doesn't, you know, I could have, uh, I, if someone said, hey, you can have this social experiment all your way. You can have the best kitchen in the world. You can have the best pots and pans in the world. You can have the best chef in the world. You can have all the, the best recipe in the world, but all you've got are these rotten eggs. I, I'm not going to be able to make a good omelet with rotten eggs. So, and that returns to the earlier point about uh, John Adams, uh, our constitution presupposes a moral and a religious people. Um, people collectively have to be right with God, and that's not going to happen unless they're individually right with God. And that means we have to repent of our sins, and sins as defined by the Bible, not by the hurt feelings of someone. Sins as defined by the Ten Commandments. Sins as defined by the Sermon on the Mount. I've got to repent of my sins, and I've got to ask God to receive me on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And every, the Bible promises everyone who does that is going to be received. Every, uh, if you call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And so I don't think America or Australia or any other nation can be saved unless individuals, as individuals, decide to get right with their maker. Brings to mind a conversation 15 years ago, one of my daughters brought a friend home for the weekend. And for some reason over dinner, she started to tell us in great detail what she thought God was like and what she thought about him. And it struck me that she was seeking to define God in her terms. 
I thought about it for a while afterwards and I thought there's so much in there I don't want to try and unpack it. I simply said to her, have you ever wondered what God might think about you? And I remember she looked at me absolutely stunned and she said, I've never thought of it that way. All right. Doug, thanks for your time. It's been lovely being here with you in Moscow, Idaho. Yeah. Rural America. I rural really, America. Yeah, yeah. It's a great place, rural America. Yeah. I love it here. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us.